Uh, This morning we're in John chapter 16. We're going to read verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Remember, it's the final discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to go to the cross. He's, He's hours now, if not minutes, from going to the cross. He's speaking to his disciples, and these are the final words that he has to share with them. If you would stand with me for the honor of reading God's word together, we'll look at the sermon entitled, Clarity and Peace, from John chapter 16. Verses 25 through 30. Here's what the precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf... For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? (laughs) Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have uh, tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank him for his word now. Lord, we do thank you for this wonderful word which you've given to us, Lord, that you have set apart for your people to be able to understand and know. Father, we thank you that because your spirit now dwells in your people and your New Testament church, that Father, we are able to understand your word plainly, that we are understanding clearly what was once hidden from us in its meaning. So we thank you, Father, for the gift of that. And also, Lord, we thank you that you have overcome the world. We thank you that despite the many tribulations we face in this world, whether it's tribulation from physical suffering or some, from, from persecution from the lost world, that, Lord, you have overcome. And because of that, we can take courage. We can be courageous Christians because we know that you are the victor. We thank you, Father, for that victory that we know you have accomplished, and we thank you for how you accomplished it on the cross of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think one of the amazing things that we've seen throughout this whole long discourse, it just keeps coming up over and over again, is the Lord's constant care and attention for others. Especially when you you consider the context, even when the overwhelming troubles of his own life facing him, his own ministry, the, the troubles are staring him in the face, we see our Savior's care for others. Instead of being consumed with his own heart-wrenching trials, Jesus' focus is not upon himself. His focus is upon his disciples and preparing his disciples for the trials that they're about to face in just a few hours. His focus was upon making, remember from last week, their joy complete and ensuring that they will have peace in the midst of their coming storm. Friends, how was that for thinking of oneself, uh, uh, others above oneself? It's a great example. 
Jesus shows us this example, and by his example, we're reminded of our responsibility as God's people to not allow ourselves to be so consumed with our own troubles that we fail to care and to provide for the needs of those around us, especially those under our immediate care. It's a wonderful thing to understand. So it's within that understanding of Jesus' care for others and us following that example that we dive right into the text and begin looking at the text before us. Look at verse 25 as we begin this morning. He says, These things I've spoken to you, Jesus speaking, in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, when Jesus refers to that phrase, these things... Um, You see that twice here in this text. He's certainly, obviously, referring to all the things he said to them in this immediate discourse that started in John chapter 12. But it's even likely that he's referring to all the things that he has spoken to them from the beginning of his ministry. You know this, that Jesus has, has spoken many things to his disciples. The truth is... Much of what Jesus is teaching them was spoken to them in veiled or figurative language. In fact, when we take the time to consider how many things Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry, and and we look at how the disciples responded to his teachings, it's easy to see that they didn't quite understand all that Jesus taught. There were many things they simply did not get. In fact, so much of the discourses we have from Jesus are actually in response and in clarification of his parables or his figurative language. You find him constantly explaining or unfolding these things so that the disciples might understand it. And even when he explains it to them in length and in depth, they still don't get it. Think about it. Consider the many figures of speech and the parables Jesus used in the beginning of his ministry. For example, he told his disciples that he was the bread of life, that he was living water. He spoke of the need of his disciples to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. He spoke about the destruction of the temple and it being rebuilt again in three days. He had referred to himself as the good shepherd and the door to the sheep gate. He said that he existed before Abraham was. Even our text here from a couple weeks ago, he used that phrase a little while. And and remember, that term caused great confusion to his disciples. He said, I will be here and in a little while I'll go away and then a little while I'll return. And they lost their minds trying to understand what he was saying. Here in verse 25, uh, there's quite a bit that the disciples just couldn't understand. In our verse here, Jesus tells them, that there's coming a time when things will become clear to them. When he will speak openly and they will understand fully everything he has to teach them about the Father. That time was on the horizon. That time was about to dawn, but it had not yet arrived. The time for clarity would come very soon. In fact, it would come in a matter of days. But it was not yet. Because, friends, before that day and that time could come, Jesus had to finish the work that he came to do. 
Jesus had to complete and accomplish the work of redemption. He had to, first of all, uh, make his way to the cross and suffer the sins of his people uh, and die a sinner's death on the cross on our behalf. He had to then be raised from the dead and ascend to heaven and sit down at the right hand of the Father. Only after that would the day and the time come when he would send his spirit to his people and then he would bless his people with clarity. There could be no doubt that this promise has already been fulfilled by our Lord, that the proof can be found throughout the entire New Testament. Think about this. While the apostles were at one time men who had trouble understanding the nature and purpose of Christ's ministry, what do we find happen after the day of Pentecost? After Pentecost, the Spirit granted them such understanding of these things that they were inspired to write about these things with great clarity. They all of a sudden have this tremendous ability to speak uh, clearly about the doctrines of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin, referencing this, said this. He said, they were at that time so slow that the slightest difficulty of any kind made them hesitate. For as children who are learning the alphabet cannot read a single verse without pausing frequently, so almost every word of Christ gave them some sort of offense, and this hindered their progress. But soon afterwards, having been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they no longer had anything to prevent them from becoming familiarly acquainted with the wisdom of God, so as to move amidst the mysteries of God without stumbling. Now, now listen... You might be thinking, hearing this and thinking, well, are you trying to tell me that, that, that there are some things that aren't crystal clear in the, that are crystal clear in the New Testament and I, I'm just dumb for not being able to understand them? Well, if you joined our Sunday school class, you would know that there are still some things in the New Testament that are difficult to understand. There are. So much so that even Peter says there are writings of Paul that are difficult to understand. That's not the point. But think about this. These men who were surrounding Jesus, these disciples, they at the time couldn't even understand basic Bible matters. After Pentecost, they were the ones, the same ones who were used of the Lord to write some of the clearest passages in God's word about the nature and person of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, who could read Ephesians 1 or Romans 3 or Romans 5 or Romans 8 or Philippians chapter 2 or 1 Peter 1 and not appreciate the great clarity and doctrine in which the work of redemption is described for us? Compare those passages then with the teachings that are found within the gospel accounts. Now we, now we can understand them, right? Now we know them with great clarity because we have the benefit of the epistles of the rest of the New Testament. Now we can look back and read those Gospels and say, oh, this is what he must have meant when he said this. But it's only in light of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost that this clarity is given to God's church. I want you to think about this, because this is why we need to know this. Folks, if it weren't for Jesus fulfilling his promise for sending his Spirit to the church, we would have no hope to understand even the most basic truths about the Christian faith. I think we need this because we, we get a little bit of an intellectual pride in studying doctrine oftentimes to think that because we're intellectual, we're able to understand more than the common man. 
Friends, you would understand nothing if it weren't for the Spirit of God. Nothing about God's Word could you understand if God had not sent you His Spirit to illumine that Word in your life. That's just the the bottom line of it. And, And we need to understand this. It needs to cause us to be humbly grateful as we approach God's Word, to be thankful that His Word does enlighten our eyes. His Spirit does enlighten our eyes. Paul teaches us this truth in 1 Corinthians 2, that the natural man, the man who is outside of Christ, does not and cannot accept or understand the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. The natural man can't understand the Scriptures at all. We must be given the Holy Spirit if we are to understand the message from God's word. But notice what Jesus' promise is in verse 25. His promise is not only that they would have clarity as it concerns all the things he taught, but he would also speak plainly to them of who? Of the Father. In other words, with the coming of the Spirit, they would have a clear understanding of who the Father is. Jesus would provide clear knowledge of God the Father. He would provide us with the character, the attributes, and the work of the Father. You know, so many people in our world today claim that they know God. They think that they know God, but they really don't know Him at all. We touched on this last week, so I won't spend too much time on it this morning. But friends, we must remember that the only way to truly know God is to know him through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came into this world with this specific purpose to declare to us who God is and what he is like. Friends, you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus Christ. For anyone to try to know who God is and what God is like, apart from knowing Jesus Christ, is up for an impossible task. You recall the words of our Savior, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus said this, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The only way you can know God is for Jesus to reveal him to you. There is no other way. So if you want to know God, it's clear. You need to know Jesus first. I want us now to turn our attention to the next couple of verses in verses 26 and 27 of our text. Look at what the Word of God says here. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request to the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Really, last week, we spent a lot of time talking about prayer. We, we mentioned a lot of what verse 26 talks about, about how we no longer need a mediator. We no longer need a priest to come and take our prayers to God, that Jesus stands interceding for us constantly so that we can have access to to God. So I won't spend too much time on that, but I want you to notice how Jesus tells the disciples in verse 27 that the Father loves them because they love Jesus and believe that he came forth from God. I love this because in, in order to appreciate how profound what Jesus is saying here really is, we need to think for a moment about what's to come. We need to think for a moment and remember what the disciples are about to do. Think about how they are going to react once the guards come for Jesus and once the wheels of the crucifixion are set in motion. They're going to leave him by himself when times get tough. 
They're going to abandon him. But I love this. Here's the amazing thing about all of this. Jesus knew they were going to react that way. When it happened, it was no surprise to Christ. He knew they were going to forsake him within just a few hours. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times before the rooster would crow. What makes this so profound is how Jesus speaks of them in verse 27. He commends them for their love and their faith. Weak as their love and their faith was, Jesus commends them for it. J.C. Ryle put it like this. I love this. He says, Yet weak as their graces were, they were real and true and genuine. They were graces which hundreds of learned priests and scribes and Pharisees never attained, and not attaining, died miserably in their sins. Let us take great comfort in this blessed truth. The Savior of sinners will not cast off those who believe in him because they are babes in faith and knowledge. He will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. He can see reality under much infirmity, and where he sees it, he is graciously pleased. The followers of such a Savior may well be bold and confident. They have a friend who despises not the least member of his flock and cast off none who come to him him however weak and feeble if they are only true brothers and sisters listen i i pray that you would be tremendously comforted by this reality and truth please understand god's love for you is not conditioned upon how great your love and your faith are toward him it's not the father who loves all who loves his son and believe on him He loves everyone who does those things, no matter how weak or little their faith may be. If you have love, if you have faith toward the Father, the Father loves you. You are his child. Now, now listen, of course, this isn't meant to excuse remaining content with our weak and little love and faith. We ought to pursue all the means of grace the Lord has provided to strengthen our love, to strengthen our faith toward him. But nevertheless, the point is even those with the least amount of love and faith can still enjoy the full scope of God's love toward them. Friends, this is great news. Because honestly, if if we're going to be honest with ourselves, none of us have as strong a love and faith in the Lord as we ought. Our God is full of grace. So if you're here this morning and maybe you're walking through a difficult trial and you you may feel that your faith is weak and that your love is weak, friends, the question you need to be asking is, do I have love for God and do I have faith? If so, know that you can enjoy the full scope of the Father's love toward you. What a tremendously gracious God we have. And in fact, let that be the thing to drive you to love him and have faith in him even more. Because he's so gracious to you in your weakness. Because he's so abundantly kind and merciful despite your weakness. Let that be the thing that drives you to love him more, to obey him more, to believe on him more. Let's look at verse 28 now. This is really just a short verse. I kind of like this. It's self-explanatory. Verse 28 says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. You know what we have here? We basically have what amounts to a summary of the work that Jesus came to do. We break it down. He says that he came forth from the Father. 
which speaks to the fact that Jesus is eternal. He was never created. He has always been, always is, and always will be. So he says, I came forth from the Father, which speaks about his eternality. He existed in heaven with, with the Father before he came to earth. He says from there, he came into the world, which of course is speaking of his incarnation, right? What well, we celebrate at the Christmas season and every other day before and after the Christmas season that Jesus, the, the king of the world, stepped out of heaven into this world to die for his people. He then says he will leave the world, which speaks of his death, and then he says he will go back to the Father, which speaks of his resurrection and ascension. I love this. It's a short summary of the gospel. Memorize that verse and use it as you think about the the, the threads of who Christ is. Now, let's look at the way the disciples responded to what Jesus said in verses 29 and 30. This is kind of funny to me. I don't know if it is to you. Look at what they say. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. You see the problem here? I think you probably do. First of all, Jesus has told them that the time is still yet in the future when he would speak plainly to them in such a way that they would understand these things. Second, they don't really understand what he's saying. They're saying, yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm following you. By the way, I just, I do this all the time. I want to confess this to you, right? Especially if I'm going to a mechanic. I don't know why mechanics always talk to you like you know everything about cars, right? If you did, why would you go to the mechanic? Anyways, uh, so I love every time a mechanic talks to me and they say, here's your problem. It's blah, 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 blah. And I say, oh man, okay. Yeah, I thought that's what the problem is. Uh, I get you. I understand it. I understand it. I understand it. He said, so you know, you know how to fix it then? Well, no. Uh, no, I'm not even sure what that is. But I've already dug a hole, right? And I'm too much of a little bit of a narcissist probably to get out of that hole. So I'm just going to go further into, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know what to do. And I'll walk away from the mechanic and have to call my dad and be like, hey, uh, I have no idea what this man said. He's speaking in a foreign language. Uh, we do this all the time. There's several times where somebody will come up and have a conversation to me and I won't hear the first thing they've said, but instead of just asking them to repeat themselves, I just go on with the conversation, right? Don't lie to me and pretend like you've never done something like this, okay? This happens all the time. We pretend to understand things when we have no idea what the other person is saying. So you have full reign to now call me out on that, okay? If you ask me if I understand something and I say, yeah, 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 I get it, uh, you have full reign to say, could you explain that to me, all right? And I'll do my best to uh, humble myself in that moment. This is exactly what the disciples are doing. They've got no idea what they're talking about, and they're just talking to talk, to believe, to to think that they know what Jesus is saying here. They are blind to it. Uh, Somebody that they, they find out they have no clue, they're just nodding their heads, that's what they're doing. They still don't understand that Jesus had to go to the cross. They still don't understand that Jesus had to die and that once he was crucified, they they still didn't understand even then that he had to come back to life on the third day. We know that. Why? Because of how extremely surprised they were to see Jesus when he rose from the dead. They were in mourning. They thought, this is it, man. We're we're doomed. (laughs) Lo and behold, the surprise of a lifetime, Jesus appears to them. And so what we have here with the response of the disciples is an example of overconfidence, to say the least. Gordon Ketty put it in this colorful language. He said, the disciples were believers, but they thought themselves to be much stronger in faith than they really were. 
They were like that lady in the choir who thinks that she's singing like a nightingale, but she actually sounds more like a crow. Now, I asked Pastor Justin this week if he would like to give any examples in in our choir from that, and he said, we've got nothing but nightingales, okay? So be encouraged there, or be discouraged that your pastor would lie to his pastor. So, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, But I think that's such the case. You see, the disciples recognized something of the plainness of which Jesus had spoken to them, and in doing so, they mistakenly thought that Jesus, the day he was talking about, had already arrived. They caught, a, they caught a little bit of the plainness, right? A little bit of the clarity, and they thought, oh, this must be it. Now we understand and believe. They thought that the time had come when they would understand all these things, but they were mistaken. D.A. Carson says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. He's correct. Whenever we are wrong about something and we persuade ourselves that we are no longer wrong about it, even though we are, we are in a bad spot. This goes to show us how deceitful our very hearts can be. We're in danger of fooling ourselves all the time. That's why we consistently need to run to God's word to constantly check ourselves because, friends, left to ourselves, our hearts will deceive us. For this reason, we must always remain teachable, always be open to correction. The Apostle Paul reminds us to guard ourselves in this area when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That's a good word. Let's turn now to our final verses in verses 31 through 33. Look what Jesus responds to their claims of knowing the truth jesus answered them do you now believe behold an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone and yet i'm not alone because the father is with me these things i've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take courage i've overcome the world i want us to first note what seems to be a sense of sarcasm maybe a probably a rebuke when he responds to their overconfident confession of faith. They had boldly proclaimed that they now understood with clarity exactly what Jesus had said about his work of redemption. They told him that based on their understanding, they believed that he had come forth from God. And Jesus basically responds with something like this. Oh, really? You do? Now you believe? To which he then goes on to tell them how they're about to forsake him in his time of need. How their failure will even actually be a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that Brother John Walters read from Zechariah 13. Where it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. That's exactly what will come to pass once Jesus is taken away. That hour was coming soon. Jesus knew that Judas was on his way with the guards. And because he knows all things, Jesus was able to say that the hour had come. Even though he hadn't been arrested, Jesus knew it was set in motion. In just a little while, their love and their faith would be tested like it's never been tested before. The result would be that every one of them would forsake their master. Jesus ends this discourse, thankfully, with a sobering word of warning followed by a word of encouragement for his disciples. He tells them in the world 
they're going to have tribulation. Friends, we've talked about this several times throughout this discourse. They are going to have to, this word applies to us as well. As his disciples living in the day and age in which we live, Jesus is honest with us. He would have every person who has ever placed their faith in him to count the cost before signing up to join him in his work. In the world, if you belong to Jesus, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. It's not the kind of promise that we like, is it? But it's one that he assures us of. There's no way around it. You belong to his infantry. You've been commissioned to go to war. And that means you're going to experience tribulation. We're fighting a battle, church. We're at war. And seeing these words of Jesus and understanding what it means by this, to me it becomes quite ironic how often we hear preachers on TV telling people how much better their lives will get if they will just come to Jesus. How often is that the experience of the true and actual Christian? Consider the huge numbers of people who come to Christ in places where Christians are persecuted. We pray for those Christians in in North Korea or or China. Do you you think their lives are easier once they come to Christ? Do, Do you think it's easy for them from Lord's Day to Lord's Day to assemble with God's people? Imagine what it must be like for people that are to place their faith in Jesus Christ and and join themselves to God's people. That's persecution. You can be sure that Christians that live in Muslim nations don't have easy lives. Their lives do not get easier if and when they come to Jesus. But there is, though, one sense in which our lives get easier. It's internally. And this is the point of this verse. Knowing Jesus, we are given that peace that surpasses all understanding. Knowing Jesus, we can be courageous. We can take courage. Why? Because he's overcome the world. Church family, the victory has already been won by him, and we are just waiting to enjoy his spoils of war. So we can take courage. Friends, even if things look terrible on the outside, inwardly we can be courageous because King Jesus has already accomplished our redemption. While it may be the case that the world's happiness is conditioned by circumstances, by the happiness they get from their material goods or or relationships or whatever it is they can pursue, the Christian finds that his happiness is not conditioned by his or her circumstance, but by a relationship to Jesus. That's where your happiness comes from. He has single-handedly overcome the world. And because he has, friends, family, we can rest at ease. I just want you to remember this truth. I just know many of you in your lives, you're walking through a tribulation now. You are experiencing the promise of Christianity where where there's persecution that's happening. Friends, take courage because this promise is one of great magnitude. Your Savior has overcome the world. The sting of sin, the sting of death, it's been taken away in Christ Jesus. He's won. 
The victory is his, and because we're tied to him with even a little love and a little faith, we get to enjoy the full spoils of his victory. Live in that reality. Oh, how we need to to live in that truth when we're walking through these things. Friends, what do we have that could ever take away the joy of knowing that Christ has overcome everything that you faced? He has faced, and he did it without sin, so that now you're tied to him. You don't face the penalty of your own sin. You experience the joy of his righteousness imputed to you on the cross of Christ. What joy there is for the church to know this. I want to close with one final quote from J.C. Ryle, which... I've said it over and over again. Uh, One of the best commentaries in the book of John I've ever read. I encourage you to get it. He says this. He says, The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes beat heavily on us, but let them only drive us closer to Christ. The sorrows and, and losses and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold on Christ. Armed with this very promise, let us under every cross come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us often say to our souls, why are you cast down and why are you disturbed? And let us often say to our gracious master, Lord, did you not say be of good cheer? Lord, do as you have said and cheer us to the end. What a tremendous, tremendous promise. Amen. Please join your hearts with me in prayer. Would you stand together with me?